This podcast was started to discuss meaningful topics and issues from the lens of two Khmeragan sisters and other diverse community leaders. Today's topic is a conversation with author Putsata Reng. Welcome back to the Two Khmeragan Sisters podcast. My name is Jasmine. And my name is Melissa. We are your co-hosts. In honor of my new year, this 2022, we have invited a very special guest. We are honored to be in her presence today. Ming Putsata Reng's beautifully written memoir, Ma and Me, recounts her family's journey from Cambodia to the U.S. Putsata grapples with the identities and relationships of growing up in America as Cambodian-American, gay woman, and a child of refugees. We are fortunate to have received early copies of Ma and Me and the opportunity to speak with Ming Put about her memoir and her life. We're so proud as Cambodian Americans that Putsata has the courage and openness to share her and her family's story that will now live on for generations to come. We want to share more about Putsara before we dive into our conversation. Putsara is an author and journalist who has written for a variety of national and international publications, such as the New York Times, Politico, The Guardian, The Seattle Times, and the San Jose Mercury News. Putsara was born in Cambodia on April 27, 1974, a year before the communists captured Cambodia. In full violence, destruction, and tragedies ensued with the rise of the Khmer Rouge. In April 1975, she and some of her family members escaped Cambodia by a naval ship, surviving for almost a month until they reached the Philippines and later were able to be sponsored to live in the United States. Congratulations on publishing your first book, Ming Put. Thank you for being on our podcast today and helping us ring in the new year. Everybody, happy new year. Hi, everyone out there. <laughs> and let me also just um, say very quickly, what an absolute honor to be invited by Melissa and Jasmine on their podcast. I can't help but think if if I had written my book 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, would I have had this opportunity to be interviewed by two professional Khmer women on their podcast? Thank you. I think not. And what an exceptionally beautiful opportunity to know that one of my first interviews for this book is happening with fellow Khmer people. Because first of all, I would just say, Right off the bat, the fact that you know how to pronounce ma correctly, <laughs> rather than how we try to explain that it's not ma or ma, ma it's ma, um, with the hard A at the end, um, that says a lot. And for somebody like me who feels so deeply and, and uh, profoundly about the need to, to claim our space and claim our identity, it matters. These, these things matter. To be able to be interviewed by two fellow Khmer women um, who... Uh, are engaging at it at this level in podcasts and the fact that your whole podcast is designed around highlighting issues that impact my people it's pretty astonishing and, and inspiring and so it's an incredible honor for me to be able to get this chance to have a conversation with both of you that you know we've come a long way I'm just so proud of our community coming together and there's just so many talented individuals who, you know, we want to shed more light on because Khmer representation is just so small, right? 
within the space. We are honored to have you, but also, yeah, we're just so proud of everyone, including ourselves. Absolutely. And you bring up something that I think is so critical for not only our Khmer community to know, but for the rest of the world to know, Melissa, which is this idea that our representation has up until recently has been pretty limited. This year, we had our first Khmer mayor in Lowell, Massachusetts, Mayor Chow. Last year, we saw the first Cambodian American go to the Olympics, that's Jordan Wendell. This year also, I believe, or potentially it was last year, there is a, I believe she's Khmer French uh, actress in a primetime um, prime time slot for TV viewing. It's a series on, um, you're gonna have to double check me, but I, I think, I wanna say that it's Netflix and um, she's a Khmer lead, an actress. And so I feel like there's this, there's this uh, particular momentum happening for our community right now that's, that's very exciting to see. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad we're a part of it too. <laughs> yeah, and we just decided to pick up our mics and just create our own voice. I feel like the more that people see us in these spaces, the more people who will feel like they can do it. So we're excited to see what the future holds for everybody. Absolutely. I think it starts with a, that simple brave act of picking up the mic and using your voice in whatever way you can, in whatever ways we can. In a sense, this book that I wrote is me and my version of picking up a mic. Different, but similar. It's not orally, but it's, in, it's, a, it's a written story. What I learned, I think, uh, that is so critical and that both of you in, in this early part of the, our conversation is reminding me of is just how critical for us to tell our own stories, right? And for us to do it on our terms, I suppose, let somebody else define how our narratives are told. What better way to do that than to, as you say, Jasmine, pick up the microphone. Well, we're so honored to have you today. Um, I just want to first share my initial thoughts of reading your memoir. Um, I got to say, Putsara, after reading the story, I just cried <laughs> for a couple minutes because I was just, as a reader, wanting the best for you and the most happiness for you. The relationship that you have with your mom is so complex. And I was there right with you wanting her acceptance and wanting her to embrace all that you are. Um, so I just wanna share how beautifully you've written your story and how honest and true it is to you. And I love being able to learn more about your family because your sister, Shania, is actually my mentor and friend. So it was funny to see her name pop up and realize, you know, the things that she did as a teen, <laughs> as a kid, um, even like the years that I knew her, I didn't know that all of these things were happening within her family because she's so professional and, um, you know, she wouldn't really say that to me because she wants to like, she wanted to support me. So it was really interesting to learn about your version of the story about your family going on the ship. Um, it was also interesting to see like the similarities and differences between both of our families. And I'm just amazed at how much your family supports each other, how much they've sacrificed here in the United States and also their love and care for their community. So always wanting to give back to your family and relatives that come, that have come to the United States. So I just don't want to reveal too much about the book, but I, I am so amazed by how well you've written this book and how you were able to paint scenes, even ones that you were not physically there. And so I'm really interested to learn more about how that process was like, um, how that kind of shaped your relationship with your family as you kind of learn more 
about, you know, recounting things from the past. So I just want to kind of share a little bit about how I felt. And um, again, we're so honored to have been able to be one of the first ones to read the book and get to talk with you. Like what, what a privilege is that to talk to the author of this amazing book? What a lovely assessment, Jeff. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that I, I actually deserve it, but I, oh, yeah. but it's such a beautiful, uh, it's a, it, it's such a beautiful and hopeful uh, evaluation of, of this story in particular, because it was, as you might imagine, and, and as you both know, also interviewing your mother for this very podcast, that these are the types of conversations and interviews we have with family members that are just fraught and filled with emotion, because how does one separate oneself from a painful past? And in, and in the case of uh, you know, well, I'll speak with, uh, I'll speak for this idea that, that I play up in this particular piece, the mother-daughter bond. How does a mother speak to her daughter, or in your case, her daughters, about a painful past? How do daughters engage with our mothers knowing that they have lived through such horrible things and, and challenging things that we cannot imagine because our lives have been rooted in America? We didn't have that same kind of conflict, right? We didn't have the same kind of, of um, scarcity and uh, conflict and, um, uh, and just emotional weight to carry. So, so what does that mean for us as Khmer daughters? And that's one of the, you know, to me anyways, working on this book, one of the central questions that, that I was really kind of, uh, you know, chewing for the past several years working on this project is, what does it mean to be the daughter of Cambodian refugees? And I, and I hope that, that, that I illuminated some, some thoughts on that in the book um, and some of the musings that I had because it's, it's, it's a very complicated relationship. Yeah, I related to so many of the experiences that you brought up, such as going to Cambodia to Stroke Mai and feeling guilty for being a survivor. I always think about that and I, I bring that up often. And feeling like there's a debt that I owe for my existence and for all the opportunities that I have. We talk about that a lot, about the expectations from our family and just the, the heavy burden that they put on us to kind of, you know, steer the, the path forward and make sure that we're never in that situation again. The last book that I read by a Cambodian American was First They Killed My Father by uh, Long Ong. And that has such a profound effect on me. It was the book that I read before visiting Cambodia with my professor and peers. And I wanted to learn more about our history, what you know, my family and community went through. And then after that, I didn't read any more books by any Cambodian American authors. And I often wondered why. So this was the second book that I read. And thank you for sharing your, your side of the story, because I think that we should continue sharing before it's too late and also to collect these stories so that we can pass them on to future generations. But I was, you know, I, I read your memoir in just a, a couple of days and I, it was hard to put the book down. And I like that the stories were, were short because it helped, helped me follow along, but also know that these were stories that were not shared like at once, you know, th these were kind of tidbits that you received throughout your life, which is how we also 
heard about the stories that our family shared sometimes over dinner they'll all of a sudden bring, bring up a topic or share the story about being in the refugee camp it comes up at random moments jasmine and i have so many questions for you yeah, <laughs> about like how you Let's were you able to time. collect these stories in such <laughs> detail thank you for that melissa it's it's such a uh, it's such a fantastic question it it really is i think within our community stories stories are a slow trip the painful ones, right? Because my mom could, you could sit with her and she could tell you probably, you know, five or six or seven folk tales, no problem, because it's not about her or her life or her experience. There's that emotional separation when she's telling somebody else's story and not her own. But you're absolutely right. And I'm so glad to hear that your experience is much like mine and that these stories came, came come out over time. And, and, I, and I thought about that actually myself why that was the case. And part of me wants to believe, I've actually never asked my mother why she never told us the story all at once, how we came to America. We heard it over years and years and years, different little pieces, new details. And I've thought about that. Why has it been this slow drip? I want to believe that part of the reason why has to do with the trauma that is still so present in our parents and in their parents, that if they were to tell us something so painful all at once, what kind of emotional rabbit hole would they get pushed down into as a result? And I, and I will say, frankly, as it was, just even sitting down to interview my mother and asking just one or two questions already was so extremely triggering to her that I felt awful many times mm -hmm. asking her. And yet at the same time, I recognized that she was ready to tell her stories. My father had just had a heart attack and both of them for the first time, we're wanting to talk about Cambodia. It was an extraordinary moment, and, and I happened to, to be there to capture those stories. And I think about this idea of circling back to what both of you were talking about earlier, we have to get these stories down, otherwise they'll be lost. That's absolutely critical, and one of the key motivations for me to write this memoir. I wrote it, in fact, it began as a love letter to my nieces and nephews, I have 10. Uh, and I'm over the moon about them. Um, the youngest is 10 and the oldest ones are three of them who are in uh, college right now. I'm so proud of them. And the one thing that, that I've always felt with my nieces and nephews is that one day I do hope that, that they go to Cambodia. Now, two of my nephews have, have been to Sudok Mai. Their mother took them. I've, I've had this de desperation as their aunt to ensure that, that they know this other half of them, the Khmer half of them, where they came from, and, and why, how their parents even got to America. It's so critical. And I love also, Melissa, that you had connected me to Luang, mentioning that your point of reference for learning about the genocide in our country was first reading her book, Mama Luang's book, mm -hmm. and then not having, any, not having read anything until reading my book, two different stories about survival, right? Right. And one of the things, and, and I don't know if you got to the acknowledgements page, where I do give a shout out to Bang Luang, because mm -hmm. I will always blame her for yeah. getting me started on this path. When she met me for the first time in Stok Khmer many years ago, I, I'll never forget, she told me, put, the, the stories of survival of those of us who have survived the genocide are already out there, but, but we haven't heard from the people who escaped and what their lives were like when they got to America or France or Australia or wherever our Khmer diaspora ended up, right? Right. Um, and, and so I kind of blame Bong Luong because I'm like, you got me, you dragged me down this mess. <laughs> it was so painful. That's and, amazing and here's what she I want became to your mentor and encouraged oh, you. It's amazing that she helped push this along. She, she we did. read her story and we're inspired by that. 
She really did. And plus, she just wanted to have, I think, for her own self personal and selfish reasons, she wanted to have another Khmer person to talk books about. And so that's what we do. <laughs> we are often for the past several years, particularly after I got my book contract, when we talk to each other, we we speak about craft, the craft of writing, right? And of, of uh, involving voice and character development and, and the kinds of things that we that we would probably take for granted in say, you know, university writers workshop or or memoir class and whatnot. And, and sometimes I have to stop myself and think, wow, my best conversations about the craft of writing are happening with another Khmer person. How cool is that, right? How amazing is that? So this is one of those moments where I think, and also just being here in this interview with both of you, that when we support each other, look at the amazing things that happen. Exactly. I think we, yeah, just overall, incredibly written book. So thank you so much again for, for sharing your story. And we cannot wait for it to be released to the public. So our followers are already asking <laughs> about it. They, yeah, we kind of jumped the gun and talked about it and they thought it was already being shipped. <laughs> it's coming soon. It is very soon. Yes. Very you know, during this journey of self-exploration and, and getting in touch with your Cambodian roots, by the way, we think you're blazing a trail and showing us a different side to life because the right way is not always the traditional path. And for us, we can relate to that so much. But our, our question to you is, what did you uncover about yourself and your family when writing your memoir, like having your parents open up and you know revisit these past memories? And what was the most difficult part of this journey? Well, that, that's such a fantastic question, Melissa, and, and so many jumping off points. Um, let, let me tackle the first one, what I uncovered over the course of writing this memoir. What I uncovered actually really surprised me. One of the, the stories, in fact, how the, how the book opens is with a scene of my mother running away when she discovers she's about to be in an arranged marriage. And if you can imagine 1967, Sotokamai, you know, that's just the way my girls are born and raised and you know that you're going to be in arranged marriage and you're probably going to, you live in the villages, you're probably going to end up working alongside your family in the rice paddies and, you know, have kids. And then that's kind of the cycle of life. She didn't want that. And what occurred to me over the course of writing this book was that all along I had considered myself to be sort of the enlightened daughter who's going to, to you know, make her own path and follow her, her passion and her truth. It occurred to me that my mother was trying to do the very same thing, but that she was caught. And so in a way, she wanted the same thing that I wanted, but she had different restraints and constraints that I didn't have, having grown up in America. And when I uncovered that, I will never forget the moment that my mother told me the story of how she ran away. And I won't forget it because I emailed Shanira, my sister, right away and told her, oh my God, you won't believe what mom just told me. <laughs> and I told her, I said, mom ran away before. Before she got into an arranged marriage because she didn't want to marry dad. And she never wrote me back saying, of course, I, sh I shouldn't, something along the lines of, of course, I, sh I should not be surprised, you know, that mom was a runaway bride kind of thing. And what I, what I realized is that some of us are, I think, I think, born way before our time. And I think my mother was one of these people that in a different time, as an educated young Khmer woman, she would have been able to reach for her dreams and access her dreams. But she lived in a country and a context that didn't allow her that. And so it was an amazing revelation for me. And I think that that emotional 
that, that sort of emotional core of what I understood and learned and uncovered about my mother really drove the writing process because what resulted in that was a sense of grace that I had for her and compassion that, oh my gosh, she wanted the same thing that I have wanted and have reached for. So that is one of the um, one of the key moments of discovery for me with regards to the story. There were a lot of really challenging moments. I talked earlier about this idea that it was hard to sit down and interview Matt because of how triggering my questions were. You know, keep in mind that it had been probably, I'm guessing so 2011, you know, 30 plus years that neither of my parents had talked about these stories or had told anybody these stories. And the only two people who knew were them, right? They were the only two people who shared this experience as, as adults and, and had those memories. And, and their relatives too, um, the adults um, around me, my uncles and my aunts and my grandfather. It's a very slippery slope, I think, when we as daughters of refugees get into a situation where we want, we absolutely are desperate for information and in in those stories because we are also searching for, for ourselves and for our own identities. And how do we even begin to take steps forward if we don't even know the past? We have to go to the past to keep moving forward. There's a price to pay for that moving forward. And the price was in many, many tears that my mother shed when I would ask her questions about stroke of mind. There were many times that I would, I would ask her a question. So for example, you know, asking her more in greater detail what those 23 days were like on the boat in the middle of the sea, leaving Sir Khmer. And at, some, at one point she got up and she said, she said, oh, she was saying, I'm so tired. And, and she was saying, at one point she, she reverted to English and she said, she said that a hard life and cannot remember anymore and she walked upstairs and closed the door and her you know went into her bedroom and closed the door and I was sick to my stomach with grief because I didn't know how to reach her our love language in our culture which I think you two will know and appreciate is not to reach out and to hold and to say I love you but it's through food you know, if there's something that happens in our family, like somebody gets sick, or even if it's an emergency, you know, the aunties are like, oh, you know, let's, let's get Baba on the, on the stove. We're like, no, Baba doesn't solve everything. Yeah. And so there's, there's almost this, this switch that has to happen in the context of America, where indeed we've come from another country. And at this, and, and, and at one, in, in one sense, we can't, I can't expect, or we can't expect our mothers to have left who they were at the border when they came to America. And on the other end of things, they cannot expect that we would be the Cambodian daughters that we would potentially be had we been in Sokhumai, right? Because we are not. We're sort of, in a sense, hybrid. Our identity is a bit hybrid. Yeah, those are you know interesting points that you raised. And I also wonder if it's also the fact that they're tr- trying to hold on to who they were because in America, they, it doesn't feel like it is their country. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's language. You know, I don't know how it was for your mother, but for my mother, for my parents, they learned just enough English to get by and to work. Um, manual labor jobs. My father washed dishes at a diner in downtown Corvallis, Oregon, where, where we grew up. And my mom was a janitor. And so those were types of jobs that didn't really require English. They could just do work with their bodies and their hands and their backs. Mm -hmm. 
when I think about it now, I think, my goodness, how isolating that must have been to not be able to speak their own, their Khmer language to other people in Corvallis, because there were no other Khmer's in Corvallis at the time. How isolating and lonely that must be when, when you can't even express simple language because nobody will understand. Right. And your dad, he was a, he worked for the government, right? And to come to America and having to start over and, you know, be a dishwasher, that's, that must have been extremely difficult for that to not transfer over. Absolutely. It's, it, I, I think that probably one of the most profound challenges and wounds that refugees, now I want to, I want to say that again, refugees as opposed to immigrants, because refugees means that we are fleeing something, we are fleeing war, as opposed to if we were to just say my family immigrated over. But for refugees, I think that that, that, that that is really a deep and existential wound when your identity gets completely turned upside down by virtue of the fact that you had to leave your home. The part about your dad really struck me as well, um, especially the part where he said a statement about well, I used to wear a uniform. I used to have a badge. Like, I used to be this way. And it's sad because in their home countries, they might have been in a certain role. And then when they come to America, it's totally different. They got to start all over. Um, And we resonate with how your dad went through mental illness because our dad also struggled with finances in the same thing and doing manual labor jobs. So I know our conversation has been about your mom, but learning about your dad as well was really striking to me. Um, and I hope that they found some peace living here, but I know there's probably a lot of regret and like, you know, remorse for the life that they had and what could have been. Oh girl, they have found peace a little bit too much. Whopper juniors at Burger King and now it's like pizza at, I mean, really sort of, you know, you raise an interesting question, Jasmine, which is that, uh, you know, this idea that uh, of course, our parents had to leave so much behind. And, and we forget to talk about also what they've gained, right? And they've gained an opportunity in America to live in a different way. And, and what I mean by that is in Sro Khmer, of course, as I discuss in, in the memoir, um, my dad did indeed work for the Cambodian government under the Lenol regime uh, after uh, Lenol who was uh, in the 70s, the top military commander in Stokhmai, he staged a coup against uh, Prince Norbom Sihanouk in 1970. and took over my father being somebody who has, you know, always in his youth had a lifelong dream of serving in the military or serving, serving for the government in some way. And is dedicated to this idea of service, really believed in Lenol and really believed in, you know, the, the Khmer military, you know, to then have to separate himself from that, um, to come to America, it was, it was so disorienting and so dismantling. And, you know, I, it, it's true that the, this memoir does focus on my mother, and I'm so glad that you talk about my father, because there are snippets of stories about him for sure, here in this book. And I chose those examples and those stories so specifically because one of the things I wanted to show and reveal is that, you know, our parents having come from the experiences uh, that, that they came from, by the time they, you know, they came to America, they were in survival mode. And that didn't stop. What, and what does survival mode mean? Well, it means that you're going to work multiple jobs and you're going to have to reconcile demotions such as 
wearing a crisp Navy uniform with three stripes on your epaulets versus a restaurant apron with ketchup stains on it. Your identity gets shaken in that way. And on the other hand, one of the things that I'll never forget my parents telling me, and, and this, this idea comes out a bit in the chapter where I talk about how we grew up picking berries, strawberries and blueberries and all sorts of berries, is this idea that, in, that it was a paradigm shift for my parents that in Stokmaim, there's this, there's this notion of ksai. If you have ksai, if you have string, when you pull on your strings, you can get ahead. In America, if you work and you work hard, you can get ahead. And so I think that that was an interesting shift, mind shift for my parents to really think about America as a different, in a, in a different context, which is that, oh, if we just work hard, we can have a car and we can have a home and we can have food. And suddenly it became in a little bit a you know, sort of a competition for my parents. Like how hard can we, can we actually work? How big of a house can we actually get? Um, and so in that respect, from, from my anyways, over the years, she, had, she has made different comments about how she wouldn't go back to Sokhumai because in Sokhumai, if you don't have Ksai, you're not going to get anywhere, you know, and if you, you know, if you don't know somebody and, you know, to kind of help grease the world. Now, I, you know, I say that and I know that, that there have been some changes recently in Sokhumai in terms of the, our culture and our society in Cambodia. Um, but back then in the 70s and 80s, that this was very much true. Yeah. And I, I didn't know how involved your family was in helping Cambodian families settle in Oregon. And I was actually born in Salem, Oregon. <laughs> so I think, I think it's coming back in full circle because I think because of your family, it helped yeah. us with the transition when our parents and their families settled in Oregon. Because I know you guys were, you know, one of the first families, right? Mm -hmm. But I think you helped set the foundation. And mm -hmm. I just can't believe how much, how much of a big heart that you guys had to give back to the community in that way. But yeah, we, we were from Oregon. So <laughs> I think, so I think I know that there's a connection there somewhere. Right. And I used to volunteer to go blueberry picking with my, mm -hmm. my yay. She's no longer with us, but I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to see that side as well. Seeing how, you know, our parents, they met in the blueberry fields. That's so fantastic. <laughs> so I wanted story. to see what that was like, you know, how they grew up. And I love that story. Yeah. And, and it may just be that we probably picked alongside them at some point yeah. in the blueberry fields because we would, my, our family would wake up at five in the morning and drive to to say, look, to pick in the berries. <laughs> yeah. But reading your story, it brought back memories of how cold it was in the morning. Yeah. Us like finding a bush to sit somewhere to eat our lunch. Absolutely. And then just picking from dawn until sunset. Right. Or $2 Hard an work. hour. <laughs> and I was just a kid, so I probably didn't pick that much, but I would be like, oh, I just get that much for <laughs> It felt like the whole day. Like it felt like so much. Exactly. Yeah, our our dad, he sometimes want to go to the blueberry field just to show us how fast he picks. Oh, is that right? <laughs> you know, that is such a lovely memory to have, too, because, you know, I, I'm sure in him there was a spirit of, you know, so much to my parents. Look at how fast I am. Look at how much I can work, right? Yeah. <laughs> they said, they and by being who they are, and who they were, they set an example for us, you know, and I think that one of the things that 
when I think of Khmer people. Uh, well, let me just say, I don't know that I've ever met a lazy Khmer person. I mean, there's such hustle in us, right? Um, and I realize I'm I'm speaking with a very broad stroke, and so let me let me um, reel myself back just a little bit. For the Khmer who I have ever met in my lifetime, there's just been extraordinary hustle. So the words "met and me" echo throughout the book. And I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just, you know, you wanted to care a lot about your mom. Your mom has been through so much in her life between her relationship with your dad and how you wanted to protect her and always be there for her, even if that meant sacrificing your own wants and needs um, and time. We're wondering what's a quality that you appreciate the most about your mom, despite, you know, everything that you've been through. What are some things that you take away from her that you'll hold on to for the rest of your life? Oh, it's such a beautiful and easy question to answer. My mother, just like all of us, have so many flaws. But the one thing that's always striking about her and has been relentless is an absolute fierce family love. There is absolutely nothing this woman would not do for her children and for her grandchildren for her father when my grandfather was alive, for her, her siblings, for her relatives. And that is something that has really trickled down to my generation, to me and my siblings. And then in addition, it has trickled down to my 10 nieces and nephews. And I see that and, I, and I'm filled with, uh, my heart fills with so much joy when I see that because, you know, I think about my nieces in particular, they just absolutely love getting together and love, you know, seeing each other, spending, and, and all of the nieces and nephews, they are on this sort of group chat, and they're, you know, all 10 of them are chatting with each other and whatnot about various things. When we, every summer, have a family camping, um, and very often we'll play, ba- you know, basketball or, you know, softball, they're all, there's always some kind of sports involved, and it's always the kids against the adults, and <laughs> that's fun. so much fun there, yeah, and, and I see how much my nieces and nephews just cannot wait to see each other. That is, that is the, the, the fierce family love that was seeded in my and grew through my generation and then grew again through the next generation. And, and I have no doubt when my nieces and nephews get older and have their own families, it will, it will continue to grow. There's nothing that will take that. And, and actually, I don't think that this is particularly unique to my mother. I think that this is actually something that I see in many my mothers, which is that there's so much of an emphasis on family right? And, you know, in my particular family, my siblings, I think a lot about this idea that I, I cannot imagine my life without my siblings in it. Because as much as we fight each other, which we do, I won't lie, and I don't know if my sister talked about this, but we <laughs> fight like crazy. Underneath all of that is this just unrelentless, or I shouldn't say unrelentless, relentless and undying fierce family love. And, and in, in my life, that is a very consequential and critical because I know that no matter where I do, no matter what happens to me in my life, there's zero question in my mind that if I ever meet trouble, my siblings will be there. My family will be there. That's a really special thing, I think, in, in our my culture. It's a very special thing in, in, in my family. I have friends who, who don't have this depth of relationship with their siblings or with their family. And um, it's not to say, it's not for me to say one is better than the other, I can just speak for myself and my family that, that to me, that is one of the most beautiful things that I have that not passed down to us, which is that there is absolutely nothing that will kill her love for her family. You know, and I could even, I could make a joke about how well, you know, except for being gay, 
when when Shamira uh, read the book, that was one of the things that she commented on. Um, that she said, you know, mom, even though your gay mom still loves you. Okay. And and I know that in my heart, in my core, but there's still hurt around that, right? But if I'm honest, of course, there's no question in my mind that my mother loves me and always will love me. It's just that it's hard for her to hold this. It's hard for her to hold her own identity while also holding mine um, at the same time. Yeah, it seems like it was more about her wanting to stay safe when talking to other families and like the perspective of your family to others. But yeah, no doubt, like with the stories that you mentioned, she loves you so much, but it's more so you wanting her to accept all of you, like love all of you, right? Exactly. We, we have to, I think, really reach for our selfhood because we really only have one shot, right? And, and that, that, that is probably a very cliche way to say it, but you know, what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to get at here is that something that, that you both had, had mentioned earlier, this idea of expectations as daughters of refugees, specifically as daughters of Khmer refugees. What are the expectations our parents have of us? And then also what are the expectations we have of ourselves? It's, it's a brutally painful thing to go against your parents' wishes. But if we don't, we're living imprisoned pretty much, um, imprisoned by this idea that, that we're supposed to be somebody that, that we're not, right? And at the end of the day, you know, ultimately I made the decision that it was more important for me to reach for my own happiness and try to get it rather than try to live for making my mother happy. And where a deeper understanding comes in that I have for Ma that I didn't have before I started working on this book is that I used to believe that Ma and I were so different. And my editor kept challenging me on this one over different multiple drafts of the book. And she would laugh and she would say, you know, you're always talking about how you and your, your ma are so different. And she said, but you know what I see in this book is that I see actually you're so much the same. And when I realized it, what she was talking about, I thought, oh yeah, of course we are. We each wanted to claim our selfhood. And I had the opportunity to, and she didn't. And I think that that is really one of the, reasons why we came into conflict, right? Um, it's because I think in my mom's mind, she thought, well, if she had to sacrifice and do the thing she didn't want to do, which was to be in an arranged marriage, then I should sacrifice and not marry a woman, even though I was in love. I had found somebody that I'd fallen in love with and wanted to marry, but didn't match the right gender of what she wanted. Well, congratulations for, for finding love. And oh, I was you. so happy for you. Thank you. At the end. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. And I love the picture that you have in the fact that the tradition wasn't totally what it was supposed to be, but I think that's a beautiful part of it too. Yes, that's yeah. right. Com com combine a little bit. You know, if my ba had been there and I knew they were coming, I know that I would have actually added more Kamai flair to the wedding and, you know, potentially where a support you know, or something just to, just to respect them and honor them and, and us and our culture. Um, but, you know, when they made the decision um, and it was clear to me that they weren't coming, even though I had that little tiny bit of hope still that they would show up at the wedding, um, I thought, let me, let me just do this wedding the way that I want to do the wedding, mm. that my wife and I want to do the wedding. Yeah, it was very beautiful. And I love how it all came together and that you both met each other, you know, at the, the right time. And you had to go through all of those challenges and experience, you know, different people to find the right one. So 
we do have to break that cycle or else it will continue. And I, you know, being the oldest in my family, I did get questions about, you know, marrying a Khmer man, making, you know, cooking in the kitchen, making sure the house is clean. Along with my parents, it would be relatives in the community, members of the community who would always ask me, when are you going to settle down, get married and have kids? You're getting too old. You shouldn't travel as much anymore. I got all of those questions growing up. And I always thought that we had to listen to our elders because they knew, you know, the right things and we had to follow along because they, they knew what was best for us. But it wasn't until, you know, my late 20s when I decided they're living their life through mine because they didn't have a chance to. It's really tough, you know, to break away from that. It's so hard. The pressure is real. It's Mm -hmm. so real for us. And there's so many layers for us as children of refugees, right? And, you know, you you, you raise a really important and interesting question, Melissa, which is this question of how do we be ourselves while also maintaining fidelity to our cultures, right? Yeah. Is it even possible? Where, where, it's a fine line. And where do we stand on that line? Because on the one hand, you know, we reach for selfhood and selfhood looks so different to our parents because that's not how Khmer girls would have been in Sri Khmer. Mm-hmm. There'd be no choice. No choice, yeah. And then they forget that actually, well, they're not raising their children in Sri Khmer, they're raising their children in America. But then the other piece of us who we are, three of us here in this space talking about my book, which also I think really showcases my own, you know, um, uh, you know, attachment to my culture and, and you two having this podcast and highlighting Khmer voices, showing great fidelity to our Khmer culture. How do we, how do we hold both at the same time? It's a really, it's a really interesting question and a, and a real challenge for us. Right. Yeah. So thank you for sharing. And with this next question, this is around identity and, you know, you, you speak to the evolving relationship that you have with your mom, wanting to protect her and make her proud ever since you were young, yet you are battling with staying true to who you are and meeting her, you know, extremely high expectations. What advice do you have for individuals out there who feel caught in the in-between? feeling lost or stuck about their identities uh, and pressures that they receive from their family, friends, society as a whole? That is, you know, you you both threw me an easy question and now this is like a hard question (laughs) because it's just, it requires a particular vulnerability. You know, what I would say to people who are caught in the middle of feeling that they want to meet their parents' expectations, but also really wanting to be who they are, I can only give the advice that is rooted in my own actions and what I did. At the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself. And no, no matter what the, what the cost is to family, I was certain that I would not go home again after I announced to my mother that I was going to marry and, and that the person I was marrying was a woman. And she was so distraught by that, that I was certain I would never be allowed to go home again. Well, I was just home this past weekend and my, made me kadil, um, you know, her famous, uh, you know, Cambodian noodles. Over time, I think that, you know, we can never change how somebody is going to perceive us. And if I have learned anything from doing, working on this book and from my conflicts with my mother is, is that all, all this time, all these years, I was on 
I was on a path that I, I perhaps shouldn't have been on. And that path was trying to make my mother happy. And I was miserable in the process. And so how many years of one's life can you donate to being miserable rather than just, it, it does take courage. It, it does take such deep courage to be who we are. But at the end of the day, if we can't have that and if we can't show up authentically for ourselves and for our own community, then what else is there? I want to backtrack just a little bit how this, how this book actually came to be. It started as an, as an essay that I wrote for class, a writing class. And I showed it to two people apart from my classmates. I showed it to my sister, Shanera, and I showed it to my now wife, April. And both of them were deeply affected by it. And I'll never forget when Shanera called me after she read it the next day. And she said, well, are you going to publish this? I said, no, 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 this is like, this was just for class. This essay, which was about, you know, the conflict that Matt and I were having over me being gay. It's so, it was so painful and so private. I didn't want to share it with anybody. Well, they kept nagging me, both Shanera and my wife, April. And so I finally thought, okay, let me just put it out there to the place that will reject it right offhand. And then I can tell Shanera and April, see, I, see, nobody wants a story. Well, I sent it to the New York Times, not knowing that actually it would be accepted. Well, what that did is that it suddenly put a very personal and private and painful battle between Matt and me on full display. But here's what it also did. And, 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 uh, and this gets to, you know, kind of a roundabout way to get to my point. Two young Khmer students at MIT reached out to me on email. They're both gay, um, one young, young woman and one young man. And they said, we're so glad that you wrote this story. We read it in the New York Times. Now we feel more confident to go back to Sotokamai and tell our families that we're gay. When I think about that, and I think about, you know, we talked earlier in this conversation about there's a, there's a cost, there's an emotional cost that we bear as children of refugees. And, and there's also an emotional cost of telling your true story and being your authentic self. The cost is heavy emotionally, but the cost is also the levity of knowing that two young Khmer people had the courage then after reading this story to go home and tell their parents, tell their families that they're gay. Just knowing that alone was enough for me to know that that was the right decision to get that essay published. And I don't know what's going to happen when my book comes out, but I can tell you both right now, if two young Khmer people tell me, oh my gosh, Bangput, I'm so glad you wrote this because now I can come out to my family, that will be worth it for me. That is so You've powerful. You've already impacted them, yeah. Hopefully they get a hand on the book as well. Great. That's such an amazing feeling to hear that feedback. And I hope everything works well for them when they tell their families. I want to mention a part of the book where you talk about running away all the time. And as soon as you met your wife, April, you felt home. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that you found after many years of questions and time, you were patient with yourself and you learned about yourself and you put yourself in all these different experiences. I'm glad that you're finally able to feel peace and find your love and, um, we're just so happy for you and we just met you today. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I hope everyone gets a chance to read this book and really be on that journey with you. Oh, thank you. But it is truly a gift. You know, storytelling is so powerful. And just hearing that it was life-changing for others, 
that's just, that's like already enough to know that you've made such a positive impact. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We, we had the same questions ourselves when we started this podcast, like how much should we share about ourselves? And it's <laughs> letting it out on the out. internet. Right. <laughs> you, you know, I, what, what most of you are doing requires uh, so much bravery and, and uh, a level of courage that I often, I, I teach memoir writing at the University of Washington. Now, and I often talk to my students about this idea of vulnerability and that um, if we are able to tap into those parts of ourselves that are vulnerable and we can show up in that way, that's going to touch somebody else. And somebody else is, is going to be honest and open with us as well. And I think for so often, and one of the things, you know, I noticed with, you know, some of the previous guests you've had on your podcast, um, particularly around conversations related to trauma, one of the things that I absolutely uh, admire and respect and am inspired by your podcast is that you have these guests on who are talking about topics that my people don't generally talk about, right? You know, mental illness, PTSD, trauma. Well, we have to have those discussions because if, if we don't have those discussions and we don't put them on the table, where, where is that pain gonna go, you know? In the case of my family, unfortunately, it, manif- it can manifest in unhealthy ways, you know? You know, vis-a-vis the, the violence with my father. And, you know, I really debated whether or not to put that scene or any scene regarding violence in our home in the book. Because the last thing I wanna do is to paint somebody as a monster and to demonize somebody like my father. Um, that was not, and never is, and never will be my intention. Uh, instead, I, you know, what, why I chose to put some of these scenes in here is to, just to show the complexity of who we are as my people. But in addition to that, not even my people, but who we are as individuals right? That pain has to go somewhere if it doesn't, because domestic abuse is not specific to the Khmer community. And actually, this is a point that I, that I really want to make for the non-Khmer listeners that tune into your podcast, that we are more than our trauma. We are more than genocide. We are very complex human beings. You know, we have podcasts. We're authors. We are Olympic divers. We are actors and actresses, right? Mm-hmm. And artists. And- Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're not just the genocide. Yeah, we notice that a lot with the content out there, people wanting to go back in the past, but also like, how can we move forward and how can we create our identities as Khmer Americans and what does that mean for us? Exactly. Yeah. And you kind of already spoke to your favorite parts of childhood um, in that your siblings had a strong bond and I'm glad that's been passing down through your generations of your family. Um, I just want to really point out in this episode that you've done so much, like you've achieve so much as a journalist. I, when I was an undergrad, I actually was thinking about pursuing journalism, but I didn't think I had the voice to do it. And now being a teacher, I kind of found that. Um, But it was really interesting to learn about how you traveled to Srokmai at any chance that you could um, to discuss inequities with farmers and their land. Um, You also went to Afghanistan to cover the war and that created trauma for yourself but you really wanted to see what it was like to be on the ground. Um, and then it became full circle for you to become a journalist and teach new journalists in Srokmai, which was one of the professions that were targeted by the Khmer Rouge, the careers that were most educated. And so you've carved your own path, you've challenged the status quo. Um, we're curious to know at this stage in your life, what would you say is your most proudest moment You've just done so much and that's 
because you wanted to do a lot, but also wanting to impress your mom and make her proud. Um, but yeah, what do you think about that? I have to say that my proudest moment was getting married because there had been so much in my life and my background that you, that you so beautifully articulated Jasmine of me running away constantly. What I didn't realize is that I was running away from myself and my own unease, knowing that I was gay and knowing that there would be serious implications if I said those words out loud in my family. Though I had spent so many of my years running away, the thing that I desperately wanted and, and, and felt so elusive was staying. And I, and I didn't know that the thing that would make me stay somewhere would be a person. And I have now been in Seattle, I wanna say eight, eight years now, eight going on nine years. It's the longest time I've been in any one location, which my siblings find absolutely appalling because you know one of my sisters has been you know, settled and rooted in, in Nebraska for you know, the past probably 30, 30 plus years. And, you know, my sister Shanara and, and her husband have been here in, in the Seattle area for, you know, a couple of decades. And, you know, my brother has been in Oregon uh, for, for many, many decades. And I'm that one who just keeps fleeing. <laughs> so I do feel that I am most proud of being married because I think that that, that act alone of finding love and, and, and opening myself to love, to me said that. I was growing up, I was finally becoming the person that I needed to be. And I was letting myself be the person that I needed to be. And one of the things that really struck me as I've been watching coverage of the war in Ukraine is that there was a young refugee mother who had gotten crossed over to the border into Poland and a national news anchor asked her, is there ever, will there ever be a place in the world that you feel safe again? And I think that that is such a critical question for all of us to ask our, ourselves, particularly those of us like us three who have experiences of um, being raised by, by um, parents who had to flee something and, and, and they had to flee something terrible. Is that, will there ever be a place that you feel safe? Well, when I met my wife, April, that was the very first time that I felt safe. And so finally I had a reason to stay, but all, all up until that moment, we're just searching, right? We're just searching. What is that place that we can just be ourselves and breathe and be, right? And so, um, yeah, there are many proud moments, but, but you know, you asked me the proudest and I would have to say yeah. that, that definitely was. Oh, that's so sweet. And I love when you said in the book, how love comes easy. You were asking your friends and family, you know, right. when do you know when someone's someone? Yes. And from the way that you wrote about her, it did feel like it was easy. And she accepted you and pushed you to be the person that you are. And, Super easy. Yeah. yeah. You know, girlfriend was eating sardines out in the outback. <laughs> <laughs> camping. Wow. You know, if she's over here, you know, eating sardines, we're oh good. You know, she knows how to survive. <laughs> yeah. You know, my friend Charles said that comment about love comes easy. Um, he's, he's gay, you know, married here in Seattle also. And um, gay black man, I should say. And um, similar to myself, you know, Charles has, has struggled through relationships until he finally found his husband also. And when he told me that, you know, I, it, it struck me as, uh, as deeply profound, even though it's so simple, right? Love comes easy. That's only three words. It's such a simple idea. But for those of us who come from backgrounds and Charles is too, you know, Charles grew up in, in Chicago in the 
uh, you know, in the uh, housing projects of Chicago, those of us who, ha who have had backgrounds where there hasn't been safety, where there hasn't been plenty, where there hasn't been um, comfort and privilege. These are the kinds of questions that we have to ask ourselves and these are the kinds of things we reach for. And we hope everyone can find that one day. Absolutely. <laughs> if you don't have that yet. <laughs> uh, our next question, Ming, um, is if there's one thing that readers can take away from your memoir, what would you personally want readers to take away from your book? You know, for Khmer, Khmer American, non-Khmer people, just one key takeaway. I, oh, that is a hard question too, Melissa, because I actually have two. Um, two but, is fine. Okay, so, so <laughs> something that we touched on earlier, which is this notion of selfhood, that it's so extraordinarily critical for us to claim space in this world and to be ourselves and to have the space and the opportunity to be ourselves, no matter what that looks like. Ultimately, I wrote this book for my nieces and nephews. I said, I mentioned earlier that, that I wrote this book as a love letter to them. And in fact, and indeed, I have a letter, a physical, you know, dear, and I, and I list out my nieces and nephews' name because I wanted them to know about their grandparents, their Khmer grandparents. But the other piece was it that I wanted to help instill that sort of Khmer pride in them. And in addition to that, I wanted to instill a sense that you can be who you are. They all went to um, my wedding. It was their first gay wedding. And can you imagine what that might potentially mean for somebody young who may be questioning that they are here seeing two women get married? Extraordinary. And then the other piece, the other takeaway that I also think is, is equally important is again, we mentioned it earlier, but this notion that Cambodians are only, oh, that, that our only existence on this earth is that we're connected to the genocide. We are so much more than the genocide. We are so much more trauma. Can we get beyond the trauma narrative? I'm not saying that trauma is not part of us. Of course, my own memoir talks about the different layers of trauma. There's absolutely no way we can cleave that from us and from our identities, that trauma piece, it's there. It will always be there. But what I'm demanding and what I, the message I want to put out there is that when you meet a Khmer person or a Khmer American person, know that, that we are as complicated as you. Our country is filled with art. Our country is filled with some of the best food. Our country is filled with some of the deepest expressions of love I have ever seen. Can we begin to be known for some of these things, right? As opposed to the killing fields and as opposed to, you know, to slang, right? Can we begin to be known more fully? I know we spoke a lot about your relationship with your mom and finding your identities. And we're kind of curious to know because you have spent so much time in Strokmai. I'm so jealous that you got to pick up the language and the customs. I still have yet to go visit. And I know I'll have a similar experience that you had settling in. I also love that you became local. Like you, you acted in ways to show that you're a part of the community and tried to make it appear that you're not American. So I, I love that you were so confident. What do your identities mean to you, Ming? But how can we stay connected with our Khmer culture while still living in America? And I know your nieces and nephews and us, the younger generations really want to hold on to that. But there's a lot of shame in not knowing the language fluently and so I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are. Oh, that's such a fantastic final question, Jasmine. Thank you for that. 
for me, I think that we have to reach deeper than perhaps somebody else. What I mean by that is that when I was in college and I went to my university's library at the University of Oregon to try to find books about Stroke Khmer, I found, and at the time, Bong Luong's book wasn't out yet. At the time, I found, I think, four books. And one of them was a book written by the journalist Elizabeth Becker, which was really a deep dive into the war in Stroke Khmer and, and how she was there to cover it as well. That's pretty abysmal. So that's what I mean when I say, as Khmer people, we have to dig a little bit deeper to stay, to, to find connection and to stay connected. And one of the things that I would say to Khmer people, to Khmer Americans in particular, this could be for Khmer's like myself who were not born here, but raised here, or you know, Khmer Americans who were born here, and, and this is the only country that they've known so far, is that immerse yourself in community. You know, one of the beautiful things about our communities, we love Jochnam. And that's so fun that this podcast is coming out during Jochnam because that is like our celebration, right? That is the big thing. Go to your local community and participate in, in Jochnam and be part of that. Be, you know, whatever ways you can, engage with your community, get connected. You know, it's the only way because these little threads that we have, they're so tenuous. They can go away at any time. But if we gather enough threads, we can stay connected. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, particularly for you, Jasmine, as you have not yet visited Sokhmai, our country's there. Our country's there to be learned about and to be enjoyed and to be connected with and to be known. And I think that one of the biggest ways for us to stay connected to our culture, at least for me, and I'll never forget the first time I went to Sroq Khmer, that was a huge shakeup of my identity because that was the first point of departure from this notion that I was only American. Mm. In fact, I was Khmer American because there was this whole other beautiful country with an incredible culture that was also mine. And in that, in that sense, I think that we are also very lucky that we have two worlds that we can claim as ours, right? So go to Sro Khmer, engage with the local Khmer community, reach out to any Khmer mentor who you, who you see, you know, there, I, I can probably count two or three other Khmer journalists who I know, but if there are any Khmer journalists out there that need a mentor or want to be connected, connect with me, we, we have to help and support each other. Thank you so much for that. And I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people with whatever place they're at, with their figuring out their identities and just, you know, feeling pride and being Khmer American. Well, that wraps it up. I know we've been talking for a long time. There's just so much more. Like if you see my book, I have so many different, different bookmarks of statements that you said that were so profound to me. Your story definitely made me feel a sense of just like getting to know someone on a deep level and understanding that everyone has struggles, um, everyone has their own story. And um, I'm so happy that we got a chance to learn about you. And even more through this conversation, we hope that everyone gets a chance to read Matt and Me, written by Bong, uh, Ning Putsara Ring. Um, it comes out on May 17th, 2022. And we will make sure to put all of your links onto our website, Instagram, Facebook. And yeah, um, Putsara, do you have any last words around your story or for your team? Yeah, when we talked earlier about this, you know, to, to if I could distill 
what Ma'ami is about. And I think ultimately, uh, to me, as I think about my memoir, it's about, it's about the wars. It's about different layers of wars. There are the external wars that men make. And I say men because mostly men make these wars. There's one happening in Ukraine right now. There's one that happened in our country. There's one that happened in Afghanistan, in Rwanda. Like how many countries can we name? And then there are the wars that happen between people and very often between people who we have great love for. In this particular case with my enemy, it's, it's the war between my mother and I over identity and, and me needing and wanting to be who I am and her having a hard time accepting that. But I think more importantly, and particular for listeners of your podcast, because this is something that you touch on with previous guests as well and, and, is, a, and is a theme that I think is worth visiting and revisiting over and over again, are those conflicts we have within ourselves. That if there is a way that, that we as individuals can get to a place of, of reconciling some of the demons we have deep inside of ourselves, how beautiful can that be? And, and how liberating can that be for us? And so, you know, the, the book, there are many jumping off points with this book, but I think ultimately I like to look at it with, you know, with that lens of the multiple layers of wars. And at some point we have to find that peace for ourselves. We have to find that peace in our communities. And in a larger sense, we have to find that peace in the world. Thank you so much for the opportunity again to learn um, more from you, to meet you for the first time and to ask you questions. This is such a rare opportunity. and. This is our first time having an author on our podcast. How, how wonderful. And Melissa and Jasmine, I want to tell you what joy to have this conversation with you both. What absolute joy. Well, we appreciate your time with us today. And again, please pick up Putsada's book and you'll find so many lessons in the book and have a greater appreciation for family um, and also appreciation for her as someone who was, you know, overwhelmed with so many expectations, but through that was able to stay true to herself and really find happiness. So thank you for continuing to support our Two American Sisters podcast. We're so honored to have had Ming Putsara today, and we will continue collecting stories about diverse community leaders and other topics that are not often talked about. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Two American Sisters. Bye, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone.